We continue our series today, People of Prayer. We will be in Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. He wrote a letter to them, and we call it Ephesians, although it was just a letter to a people that lived in Ephesus. So um, there's that for you. Uh, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Feel free to turn to that or pull it up on your phone and follow along. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14, a prayer of Paul. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You ever been there, airplane? You've been on an airplane and you sit down next to somebody and you just can feel it that they're going to turn to you and want to strike up a conversation. And you have strategically put your earbuds in already and and you've you've opened your book and you've given the you've given the obvious signals that I don't want to have a conversation. I just want to get from here to there today. Have you ever had one of those Moments. If you haven't, you're the one who usually instigates them. I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put it out there. You, that, this probably why you haven't had that experience. For, for the rest of us, we have. And when we typically get on a plane, and when we have a conversation like that, one of the first questions that inevitably comes up is this question: What do you? do, right? What do you do? See, we live in a what do you do world. When you first meet people, one of the first questions they ask is, what do you do? When you got on an airplane, somebody sits next to you, the question they ask is, what do you do? When you're in social settings, when you're, when you're out at a party, oftentimes the conversations surround what you do. And so we live in a what-do-you-do world. And I want to go deeper with us today because I think Paul's prayer helps us understand the first point in our outline. In a world that asks, what do you do? It's much more important to first know who you are. 
See, if you sit down in that same airplane seat, and instead of that person saying, what do you do? What if they turned to you and said, who are you? You would think they were odder than normal, right? They say, who are you? It's interesting to ask that question. It's, it's interesting to think about how you would answer that question differently. The how you would, how you, what do you do question is easy. Oh, I, you know, I, I work at a church. That usually shuts down the conversation for me. Um, <laughs> you know, I work in construction. I work as a teacher. I'm retired. What do you do? It's an easy way to talk about things. It's kind of that weather conversation. We talk about what do we do and the weather and we can have a good conversation from here to Denver. No problem. But if you go a little deeper than that, somebody might ask, but, but don't tell me what do you do? Who are you? How would you answer that question this morning? Who are you? See, I think Paul wants to talk to us about who we truly are in this prayer. And I think this is incredibly important for us to understand a a, a true identity. See, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians reveals to us our true identity. See, we have false identities, and much of what is a false identity is built upon the question, what do you do? But our true identity falls more upon the question of who are you? And yet we define our identity often by this question of what do you do? And what I want to pose to you this morning is that is a false identity. Many of those things can be taken from you tomorrow. And so then what remains? If you say, I work in construction, but tomorrow you get canned, right? You don't work in construction anymore, so what happens to your identity then? What happens to your identity in terms of who you maybe even think you are because what you do? See, there are false identities all over the world imposing their will upon you all the time. Not just in what do you do, but in others' words to you about who you are and what do you do. There's a plenty of false identities. I had a good friend whose wife... Um, was was kind of a, a somber person. Um, she 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 often walked around kind of with her shoulders turned in and looking to the ground. She was a wonderful person when she got to know her, but um, uh, right out the get go, she was one of those people that you go, man, nah, this is gonna be hard to start a conversation with this person, right? Um, and, and I later found out uh, this heartbreaking story. See, her family when she was young, they used to call her Eeyore, the lovable character from Winnie the Pooh, which at first glance is like, oh, that's, that's not a bad thing to say, but if you know Eeyore, Eeyore just wandered around trying to find his tail, right? Do you know this? Eeyore talked like this, and he walked like this, and when Pooh asked him what he was doing, he just said, I'm trying to find my tail. That's Eeyore. And when her husband told me this story, I thought, isn't that interesting? She, she bought that story. She believed that story. She has bought into this false sense of identity that if you really got to know her, she was nothing like Eeyore. 
She had a deep personality, artistic in nature. She, she, she had a beautiful person springing to life with inside of her, but on the outside, she had embraced this false identity because she'd been told over and over again, you know who you are? You are Eeyore. And I don't know what your story is this morning, but I bet if we went around the room and we asked the question, what do you do, followed by who are you, we'd find a lot of false identities. We find a lot of us answering that question by remembering this moment when we were told we weren't good enough. This pivotal moment in our life when we heard we weren't pretty enough, or we weren't talented enough, or we weren't whatever fill the blank enough. And then these, these sort of identities were maybe given to us by other people and maybe they even formed in our own minds that we, we looked in the mirror and we said, I don't love that person. I don't like that person in the mirror. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like what I see. I see a failure. I see somebody who doesn't have what it takes. I, and we buy into these false identities. And, and when I look around, and, and I look quite honestly in my own mirror, I see a lot of false identities. And I want you to hear me well this morning because there's a better identity. There is a true identity found in this prayer. And I wanted to speak to you because even the voices in your own head are not good enough. The the motivational speakers are not good enough. The self-help books are not good enough. You need to know your true identity this morning. And the only place to turn is to the person who made you to know your true identity. The one who crafted you together, Psalm 139 says, who formed you in your mother's womb. Who, who knew the days written in your book before one of them came to pass. See, see, we don't even know ourselves very well. And we are very prone to lying to ourselves. But there is one who only tells the truth. And he knows you intimately because he made you. Before you are a blip on an ultrasound. Before your first breath. Before you had any idea about this life. You were fully Known by God. He created every day that is to pass. This creator, he knows his creation. He knows what you're gifted at. He knows what you're passionate about. He knows what sins you struggle with. He knows your thoughts, patterns, behaviors. He knows if they're healthy or if they're they're destructive. He knows everything about you. And because of this, he can reveal to us your true nature. He can reveal to us our true nature. And so we need to ask that, God, by looking into his word, what is, what is my true identity, God? If there's all these voices, my own voices in my head, other people's voices in my head, if I define myself by what do I do, how can I really answer the question, who am I, God? I want to give you five key features of this revealed true identity today. Five key features found within this prayer for this church, which, which speaks to us today. Number one, we are named. 
For this reason, I kneel before my fa- the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. See, naming things has a rich history. Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth, right? And there's this really cool moment where God says, hey, I want to I find you some help. And so he says, hey, go name all these animals. And, and, and we don't have a ton of commentary on this, but there's a, sort of this moment where it's almost as if God is looking for a partner for Adam in his creation, right? And so Adam goes, oh, that's, you know, that's an elephant. Think, yeah, I don't think we match. And then, you know, I think um, that's a, a dog. And God's like, that's my name backwards. That's not very nice. And so um, that was a joke. Um <laughs> He says, uh, there's a cat, and those are horrible. No, um, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. Um, and he, he names the animals. And they get to the end of this process, and Adam kind of looks around and realizes, there's no good match for me. Like, there, there's some, like, some of them have feet like me, and some of them have arms like me, and, and eyeballs and things, but like there's no match for me. And he brings, puts, puts Adam to sleep and brings out of Adam Eve, Hava, which means life giver, right? That's a good name. And Eve comes up and, and Adam looks at Eve and he says, whoa, man. That's what he said, okay? That's how he answered. That's how he answered. Whoa, that's how she got her name, right? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's bad theology. I'm kidding. But he names her, and he says she came out of man, this life giver, this partner, this, we're going to do this life together. We were made to be with each other. And so there's this beautiful moment of, of, of naming. But, but do you notice what happened before all that? See, Adam gets formed out of the dust, but Adam doesn't name himself. God names him. So God looks at him and he goes, Adam, I'm going to breathe into him and I'm making Adam. I'm going to make him man. And see, God has this tradition throughout scripture of naming and renaming people. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. If you know, there's this guy named Simon in the New Testament. And he shows up and he wants to follow Jesus. And and, and he's kind of, a, uh, we'd call him a hot mess, okay? Um, this Simon guy. This Simon guy, let me give you some history on this Simon guy. This Simon guy follows Jesus around. One time he says, hey, um, Jesus is walking on the water. And he says, hey, can I go walk on the water too? And he goes walking out on the water, which is everybody else in the boat thinking is a little crazy. And then he starts sinking because he's like freaked out of the wind and the waves. The Simon guy later in the ministry, he gets real mad at this moment. He's got a sword in his pocket, cuts off a dude's ear. This Simon guy, he, he um, denies Jesus three times in the moment that Jesus most needs him before his death on the cross. And in the midst of this ministry Jesus looks at Simon one day and he says you know what you're no longer Simon you're no longer Simon I'm going to call you Cephas or Peter or Petra which means rock 
To which all the other disciples said, really? That guy? Rock? The unstable guy? Like, that's who you're going to name Rock God? And, 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 and Jesus goes on further to say, and on this rock I will build my church? Really? That guy? That's the guy you're going to build your church upon? That's our leader? Really? See, because Jesus knows who Peter really is. He looks at him. He doesn't see Simon. He sees Peter. And he names him correctly. See, we are named. More importantly, we, we are renamed. We are renamed. Uh, it says, the name from which every family derives its name, the name above all names, Jesus. See, I don't care what your name is this morning. Uh, it, great. If you got a cool name, awesome. I got Brian, which there's like 10 of them in my class, right? <laughs> but you know whose name I wear? I wear the name of Jesus. He calls me his kid. I am named by God himself. And I will take that name every single day. doesn't matter if your family calls you Eeyore. doesn't matter what your family named you. doesn't matter what your last name is. Every family in heaven and earth derive their name, the name of Jesus. You are named. God knows. He knows who you are. Number two. We are empowered. Why well, like this one? Uh, it goes on to say, um, I pray that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. I, um, at vacation Bible school, we had this day where, well, I was dressed up like a pirate all week. I don't know if y'all saw that, but, um, it wasn't my finest moment. Um, and, uh, I think somebody was about to call the police when I was walking across the Captain Jack Sparrow outfit on. I'm like, shouldn't let him near the children. Um, but <laughs> we had this day where we talked about how we have the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that we receive from the Holy Spirit the, the moment we surrender our lives to Christ. At the moment we surrender our lives to Christ, that, that the Holy Spirit comes to empower us and lead us and guide us so that we're not alone in this life anymore. That we have God tangibly leading and guiding us and empowering us in every single situation, every single day. And, and so I played this game with the kids that my dad used to play with me. They came in and I said, here's the verse. Um, this is the same power that raised uh, Jesus from the dead. And I'm like, who wants to arm wrestle, Right. And so these little kids, God bless them, they're like, come on, Pastor Brian. And like, we're arm wrestling. And I did what my dad used to do, which my dad used to stare at me. And he'd be like, ready, go. And then I would, and then he would say, any time now. That's what he was saying, right? <laughs> and I'm yanking with all my strength. And I, I found myself doing the same thing to these kids in BBS. Like, I'm like, any time now, go ahead, any time. And they all, you know, grabbing my arm. And, and we had this just fantastic time of, of recognizing um, there's, this, there's this great paradox. Because we are powerless, we are fully empowered. Because God is so much greater than us, He's infinitely powerful. 
and we are finite beings because we are so powerless. That is what makes us powerful. Paul later goes on to say, in my weakness is when I'm strong. When I am weak, God is at his best. And because of that, I am empowered. Ava's got this little shirt that says brave, bold, and strong. And the other day she was getting in the car going to school and I said, Ava, you are brave, you are bold, you are strong. And she looked at me and she said, I know dad. (laughs) (laughs) And you are brave and bold and strong. This is who you are. And you can look up at your dad and you can say, I know. I know. We are named. We are empowered. We are, number three, beloved. I love this one. So good. Paul sort of crescendos in this passage. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Scientists cannot find the end to the universe. Like, it just keeps going. They just keep finding more. And the bigger telescopes they have, the more they get to see. And so there's this, there's this ever-expanding universe thought amongst scientists saying, we don't know where the edge of this is. If the God who created the universe that we don't know how big it is, And the question would be, how wide and long and high and deep is this love? Right? See, we are the beloved. And as we've committed to listening to the voice of God this year, if you're new here, we've committed all of 2018 to listening for the voice of God through scripture and through prayer. And so all of our sermon series have just been around Scripture and prayer. Next sermon series, we have, we'll finish up this one next week. And then, uh, two weeks from now, we'll start a series called Pop Goes the Bible. And we're going to talk about, uh, the Bible in pop culture. And so, um, if you don't like, um, superheroes and, um, cool movies, you're going to not really like it, but I'm going to have fun. So uh, we're going to see how culture uses, or I'll be honest with you, often misuses scripture. And we're going to look at the true meanings behind that scripture. And then we will have a series on the Lord's prayer after that, uh, leading us up to Advent. And then in Advent, we're going to talk about how the whole Old Testament for four weeks, five weeks, how the whole Old Testament points toward Christmas, how all it is, is just a warm up for the coming of Emmanuel. And we've done that all year long. If you've been here all year long, this is what we've committed to, just listening for the voice of God. And when you listen, what we expect is to hear things. And, and, and I haven't heard any audible voices yet, but I can tell you one of the things I've heard. I have heard that we are the beloved. It's one of the clearest things that I've heard this year, that you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. And, and man, if I could convince you of this deep within your soul, I think, man, I think tomorrow would be different. I think today would be different. I think it'd be different for me. I think it'd be different for a lot of us to be convinced fully that we are the beloved. Henry Nouwen wrote this book, The Life of the Beloved, aptly named. And he wrote it in response to a friend of his named Fred, who was from New York, as a journalist in New York. And uh, Fred was a nominal faith 
um, person, was not a Christian. Um, and they grew a relationship over 10 years. And at some point, Fred said to um, Henry Nowen, he said to Henry, hey, I think you should write down the things we've been talking about. I think you should write a book for like me and my friends who don't really get this whole Christian thing. But the way you talk seems to make some sense to me. And so uh, Henry responds to him. And this is how he begins. Ever since you asked me to write for you and your friends about the spiritual life, I've been wondering if there might be one word I would most want you to remember when you finished reading all I wish to say. Over the past year, that special word has gradually emerged from the depths of my own heart. It is the word beloved. And I am convinced that it has been given to me for the sake of you and your friends. Being a Christian, I first learned that this word, this word from the story of the baptism of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. No sooner had Jesus come up out of the water than he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit like a dove descending on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved, and my favor rests on you. For many years I've read these words and even reflected upon them in sermons and lectures, but it is only since our talks in New York that they have taken on meaning far beyond the boundaries of my own tradition. Our many conversations led me to the inner conviction that the words, you are my beloved, revealed the most intimate truth about all human beings, whether they belong to any particular tradition or not. Fred, all I want to say to you is, you are the beloved. And all I can, all I hope is that you can hear these words as spoken to you with all the tenderness and force that love can hold. My only desire is to make these words reverberate in every corner of your being. You are the beloved. How high, how wide. How deep, how great is this love that you have been given? This isn't just for Fred. This is for you. You are the beloved. I love that he references Jesus coming up out of the water. This is something we're going to do in two weeks. And for those of you who have already signed up... um, This is what we embrace in this moment. You coming into your true identity. That the old has gone and the new has come, Romans would say. That this old identity of a sinful self, this old person, uh, goes under the water. And is then washed and cleansed and comes out of the water as a new creation. A new life. So maybe you're just even thinking about that. I, I want to encourage you, if that's something you have not stepped into, I would, I would encourage you to come next Sunday after church and, and let's talk about that. Um, because I want you to understand the depth of this. You are the beloved. And for those of you who are signed up for it, that's what you're going to get to experience. So that's kind of fun and we're looking forward to that. Number four, we are full. We are full. Says this, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Ah, I, that's a lot, okay? The, the full measure of the fullness of God. Do you get that? Are you hear what he's saying? 
1953 uh, Buick Super 8. It was my first car, okay? Green, we called it the green bean. It was just like Grandma Green, we called it, right? So it was Grandma Green, 1953, Buick Super 8. My dad found it uh, down a couple blocks away from this guy, bought it, and it was just a piece of junk. And And our deal was... Buy it when I turn 15, and then we were going to spend the whole year fixing it up. And then when I turn 16, I get to drive this cool old 1953 Buick uh, to school and back. Problem was, that car was a piece of junk. And, and, and we did a lot of work on it, and it remained a bit of a piece of junk, okay? I wish I had some great story about how I sold it for $50,000. I made a little money on it, not much. Um, and so one of the things that happened a lot, especially when we first got it, was that it, it, um, it broke down a lot. It broke down a lot. And so um, there's this one day when I'm coming home, and I don't remember where I was, but maybe at a friend's house or something, and I'm sitting at a stoplight, and all of a sudden I hear the engine kind of blum, 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 and it just dies, right? I'm sitting there at the stoplight, and they start, try to restart it. Not going to start. I'm like, oh, man. So I hop out. I go back to the guy behind me. I'm like, hey, old car. Doesn't work really well. Can you help me like push this thing around the corner so we can get out of traffic? And we do. And I call my dad. And he comes down. And he says, is there gas in it? And I'm like, of course there's gas in it, dad. Of, of course there's gas in it. And you know how the story's gonna happen, right? You know how the story's gonna happen. Get, we get in the car, and I turn the ignition on, and the meter that is supposed to go up to tell you how much gas you have, it just stays right there for some random reason. Well, it was, it was empty. It was on E. And you don't run well on empty either. And I don't run well on empty either. And I wanna lean in on you. Um, Lucas uh, shared with me some of uh, what the wildlife kids talked about um, in response to the week. Um, some of the things that um, that they'd grown in. And there was this really interesting trend. And these are middle school kids. And the trend was this. Many of them said they were overwhelmed. They were too busy. They were stressed out. They were, um, none of them used this word, but they were running empty. Thankfully, a lot of them said by the end of the week, they were running full. That's great, right? I think there's a real huge danger in our culture right now to run on empty and run our kids on empty. And run and run and run and do and do and do and do and do. And you're not a human doing, you're a human being. And you can't be full unless you take the time to be filled. Right? And I'm saying this to me. I got a four-year-old and five-year-old. He's about to start school and it's about to get crazy, crazy, right? But we can't let life run us. And we can't let life run us into the ground. There's too much at stake, church. You, you trying to pack everything in is not going to eventually make you happier. It's going to make you miserable. 
So we need to lean on this. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the water of life. He who comes to me will never thirst again. If I drew a bucket up here right now, and I said, how full are you? I bet we'd have some empty buckets up in here today, right? God wants to say to you, you are supposed to be filled to the fullest measure of God. You should be full. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Number five, eternal. Eternal. So we were at the Global Leadership Summit, a bunch of us, this past Thursday and Friday, and there was a speaker, Simon Sinek, um, and he was sort of this classic, maybe I've seen some of his clips, Um, he talks a lot about millennials and um, how to work with them and and how to... um, uh, how to empower them and, and, and some interesting um, sort of snippets that he has out on the internet. And he's kind of like a, a classic sort of non-Christian. He's not anti-Christian, but he's just sort of, he's just sort of like, eh, you know, he's not real excited about that. And, and in his speech, um, he sort of teased the idea um, the idea that you should play the infinite game, not the finite game, which I find to be very interesting for uh, a non-Christian who probably believes that when you're dead, you're dead, dead, right? Dead, dead, dead. That's what he thinks. For him to say, play the infinite game versus the finite game. And here's what he was saying. He was saying, there are things in this life that you can do that are going to live beyond you, right? That's a cool message. So he said, we want you to invest in things that will live beyond you. He said that millennials find a lot of meaning and purpose in things that are going to leave a legacy that they can look at and tangibly go, that's going to outlive me. And so we should bring that into the workplace. We shouldn't bring it to the workplace, make more money, because when you're dead, you don't get to spend it anymore, right? Um, he, 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 didn't, he said that's not going to be the currency of the next generation. He said, you don't, they're not interested in being the most powerful because you can't take power with you. And so, uh, uh, striving for power and money and success, these are not high priorities for the millennial generation, but, but one of the high priorities is being forever and ever. That's how this passage ends. Right? It says this. Not to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that has worked within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And here's why I think a non-Christian guy um, would say something like that. I think that the writer of Ecclesiastes was right. That eternity is written on each of our hearts. And that Paul prays to this forever and ever God that we are in relationship with. You are eternal beings. And you will live forever and ever. And you were made for eternity. And so even a guy like Simon, who doesn't, he doesn't quite understand why he's even maybe saying that. He says, live, play the infinite game. And I go, I know why he says that. Because it's written into who he is. It's part of who he is, not what he does. He knows somewhere deep inside, even if he denies it, that there is something beyond this life. You are eternal. My son and I are having these fun conversations lately about heaven. And we're reading the story of Daniel the other night. And Eli goes, Dad, Dad, do you think in heaven I can ask Daniel about being there with the lions? And I'm like, 
I, I sure hope so, buddy. I sure hope so. See, even, even my son has this great grasp that this life is not the end. It's just the beginning. And here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. The big idea is this. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. Did our kids come back? They're playing outside. Michelle, can you go tell the kids to come in? This is their cue. They don't even know this. They're part of the sermon. It's awesome. The big idea is this. I am a child of God. First uh, John 3. First John 3 says this. How great the love that the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You are named. You are empowered. You are beloved. You are full. And you are eternal. And the picture here is walking into the room, okay? What's up, kids? Your parents might not claim you, but go to them. Anyway, perfect. Awesome. Sweet. Hey, um, hey, hey, uh, Bodie or Boone, one of you, can you come up here? Whoever brave, that's fine. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on. I know we didn't talk about it, it's okay. Come here, come here, come, on. come stand right here. So Jesus, he took this kid one time and he said, hey, the kingdom of God belongs to these. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. See, you're smart and you've got this figured out and you, you know, you, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God belongs to these. The kingdom of God belongs to you. Childlike faith is what God wants, right? You can go sit down. Go sit down. He's a little creeped out at the moment. <laughs> See, this is the picture throughout Scripture that we have a good father and that uh, he names us. He knows us. He loves us. And he wants to spend forever with us. And so I don't know what voices are popping around in your head today. I can guarantee you that some of them are false voices. Some of them are false identities. Because I don't look at my kids and think, oh, that bad kid. I look at my kids and I say, this is what I hope for them, what I dream for them, what I think they can be, what I know them to be. And it's the exact same way that God looks at you. And that's what we get to end on today. We get to end on a meal in our dad's house. That's what we get to do. Um, so I'm going to invite... Don, can you come help serve? And I need another elder. Where's another elder? Just stand up, elder. Rick, where are you? Come help. So Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it with his disciples. And he said, when you do this, remember... Me. He took the, the cup and he poured it out and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But here's what he was doing. He was inviting them into their father's house to have dinner with their dad. And I want to give you that moment this morning. I, I want that, mo- th- that moment this morning. 
See, that's what communion is all about. It's about coming into our Father's house, hearing Him tell us what our true identity is, where there's no distractions, where there's no lies, where we can come to the table knowing that we're so loved that God didn't even spare His own child for you, His child. That God gave up His own Son for you. So my prayer this morning is that this meal nourishes you, but that this meal tells you who you are. You are a child of God. So the invitation this morning is this. If you're a child of God and you say, I want to respond to that, then this meal is for you. Kids, if you've talked about it with your parents and, and you are, are on the same page about it, you are welcome at the table. If you're not quite there yet and your parents are like, not yet, that's awesome. It's their call. They're your main pastor. I'm your secondary pastor, okay? Um, but for all those who say, I want to respond to God, I want to be a child of God, this meal is for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you speak words that are true to us. trustworthy. God, we ask, I ask now that you would silence the voices that are lying to us. I pray even in this meal, God, that you would begin to reshape our identities and that we would hear you, Jesus, speak, God, for your servants are listening. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, your death on the cross your body and your blood shed for us to give us new life, to give us new identity in you. And we celebrate that and we gather around that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.